Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of November 2021. Welcome to episode 78 of this podcast series, a.k.a. Work From Home Journal number 21, or When Will This Madness End? Journal. (laughs) The concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats which should make this pretty much the books I read during November. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, which I regularly repost on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts are not spoilers for this podcast, since those are just lists. But here, we have a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first a little feedback. We heard from Billy D. Hey, Prof. Excellent list of books this past month. And as always, thank you for being my co-pilot to work. Always glad to accompany you. And no judgment, Billy, but you might want to slow down around that big sweeping left-hand turn at the bottom of the hill. You know the one I mean. Dr. Ange said that a few things stood out from the breadth of comics I managed to read last month. Glad you read a bonkers Beowulf issue. Such a crazy comic. Loved beyond words. Putting Dracula in it is like adding MSG to food. I was also a fan of JSA All-Stars, especially. That Power Girl was team leader. I definitely liked the Freddie Williams art although I know he is an acquired taste. But the big win of the month was the two Engelhart Mr. Miracle issues. I'm old enough to remember buying that first issue of the run off the shelves. It was my first exposure to the Fourth World characters. That first issue was like being tossed into the deep end. Even at that tender age, I knew that Marshall Rogers' art was a notch above the norm and that his big barda made me feel odd sensations. I have since sought out and bought all the issues in that run, even had Engelhart sign one when I met him at Terrificon a few years ago. Perhaps a pick of that will end up on Twitter soon. Definitely worth reading more of that, I believe, five-issue revival. Michael Golden comes on art after Rogers. Thank you, Doc, for that recommendation. And yes, I need to spend more time with the width and breadth of Steve Englehart's books. It's not a total blind spot for me, but I do think I need to read more of his work. We heard from Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit. As a self-described Moon Knight aficionado, I was surprised... To hear you mention an annual I didn't remember, a Kanshu versus Kang battle? Woe is me, I don't recall reading that. Thanks for the heads up. Glad to help, Drew. And Sir, Sir Martin of Grey wrote in, I also enjoyed those Mr. Miracle books. They were so different from anything else I was reading. Extra points to Engelhart for going his own way. I like Freddie Williams' art before that JSA All-Star book, but his Power Girl was just ridiculous, even given her noted décolletage. It was distracting, but not in a good way. 
Ghost Castle has been showing up in Comixology. So I've bought the odd issue. Actually, every issue is odd. <laughs> My fave was a soul a day keeps the devil away from number one. The demons in that story amused me. Mart also wanted to clarify that he didn't say he disliked all fantasy books. I was a big fan of Arak and Arion and the original Amethyst, as well as Conan, when J.M.D. Matisse was writing. I acknowledge that, Sir Martin. I know that's what you said. But you have to understand that it is way funnier to say that you hate the entire genre and every book in it, even if it's not true. And Trevor Owen Williams wrote in to comment that he felt bad that he hasn't left any comments for a number of years, despite remaining a faithful listener. No worries, Trevor. All is good, especially since you may have noticed this, but the world has been pretty weird the last few years. So I do appreciate you listening. And I'm already warning you, buddy, just so you can prepare. But the December episode, I know this weirds you out, is actually scheduled for release on December 31st. Sorry in advance. And social media support for last episode came from Vic in Phoenix, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Chris Willett, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Tim Price, the podcrasher, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Manuel Carmona from Buy Indie Comics Day, Charles Miller, Chris Lydon, Max from The Weird Warriors, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Mr. Perturbed, Lauren Skinkus Art, Spy Vinyl, Jason C., Scott Dutton, Avant Garve from Waiting for Doom, Laurel from the Hunters podcast, and our reigning listeners of the year, the Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. Thank you all for that support and encouragement. And now, on to the books that I read in November. And as we do on the show, I'm going to categorize the books that I read. And first is the issue that I read specifically for a podcast appearance, the homework book. For Quarterman 176, I read The Savage She-Hulk number 5, which was a pretty fun read. And comics I read for listening to podcasts. And there are, as I've said, getting to be a good number of these. Because the DC Infinite app and my love of following along with comic book podcasts, if I have the chance, and the app gives me opportunities to have that chance. To listen to a recent Back to the Bins episode, I read, technically reread, but it's been at least 10 years or so, since the very early days of From Crisis to Crisis. From John Byrne, I reread The Man of Steel number one, which rebooted Superman after the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And for listening along with some old episodes of Rob Meyer's Tim Drake podcast, I read The Start of the Ongoing, which took Rob something like 40 episodes to finally get to. This was Robin, one through three, written by the excellent Chuck Dixon. 
and listen along with Billy D on Magazines and Monsters, episode 24, with guest Chris Sheehan. I read the crazy, wacky, go-go-check-era story, Action Comics 345, in which Clark Kent is revealed to be Superman on an episode of the TV show Candid Camera. And for episode 26, in which he was joined by Paul Heeks, I read My Greatest Adventure 80, featuring the debut of the Doom Patrol. And I'll listen along with Billy and Herman on their podcast, A World on Fire, episode 23. I read All-Star Squadron 31 and 32, which includes Uncle Sam and a trip to Earth-X. And for listening along with Tim Price, the Podcrasher, on the Outcaster show that he does with Ashford and Sarah. For episode 19, I read Batman and the Outsiders 18, where the team jumps back to the past to ancient Egypt, and Metamorpho gets engaged to Sapphire Stag. And to listen along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountainflower, and her crew, on episode 62 of the Huntress podcast from the Helena Wayne era of the character, I read Justice League of America 183, one of the JLA-JSA crossover issues. And in this one, everyone shows up on Apocalypse. And on to the new comics that we read right off the shelves, and we don't actually have any this month. The House of Slaughter, issue two, should be hitting Hoopla in early December, and who knows when Berserker, sorry, Berserker! Number six is coming out. So, on to the general comic reading that I did. I mentioned earlier, reading an issue of Action Comics or following along with Magazines and Monsters. That's Billy D's podcast. That inspired me to look through the stacks for other issues of that title. And boy, did I find a weird mix in Action Comics 411, 558, and 1028. Two of these were from 50-cent bins, I think, except for the most recent one, which was sent in by Dr. Ange. It was fun to read in quick succession comics from such different eras. Of these, my favorite was 411, which I put in my permanent collection. The lead story involves an oil magnet acquiring property from the U.S. government in the Great North for oil exploration, and that property includes the Fortress of Solitude. And he and Supergirl have to scramble to defraud the oil company, vandalize their property, and keep their fortress intact because they're heroes. It's a very good story, as is the second story featuring Eclipso. And then we get a great little six-pager at the end about Lorna Martin, an old college buddy of Clark's, who admits that she had a long-time crush on him. And then... We can learn even more about her. A great dramatic story. Overall, a very good issue. Issue 1028 from earlier in this year took place in the era of Clark Kent's identity being known while still working at the planet. A newspaper which is now owned by Jimmy Olsen? Because he's related to Lex Luthor? Huh. I think I've missed a few things about recent DC continuity. Tom Panaris, who you know as Stella's lead assistant on the Required Reading podcast, sent in a care package recently, which included The Crew number 6 from 2003, 
written by Christopher Priest. I read number three of this series last year and thought it was interesting. You have Rhodey White Tiger, the former spy Junta, and a few others running a revenge-fueled war on crime. Rhodey's sister was recently killed by drug dealers, and he and this crew are getting ready to go all Charles Bronson on those guys. But they have serious protection, including a few powerful politicians. Interesting setup, good issue. And Cage, number 18 from the 1990s run. This one was written by Mark McLaurin. This is Luke Cage going up against the homeless slayer. Because Luke Cage often deals with social issues that arise for people living in the the rough-and-tumble life on the street. That explains the homeless part. And it was the 90s, which explains the slayer part. And also, Marvel Age 106, which celebrated Daredevil's 300th issue, with a lot of little bits from a variety of DD creators over the years. And then, of course, there was some terrific Fred Hembeck work. This is a book, Marvel Age, that had, you know, moments over the years. Inconsistent, but with some high points. And this... I think was on the high end of that scale, or to use the Marvel lingo of the era, I put this on the cool end of the coolometer. I believe that this next one came from my buddy Clinton Robinson from Days of High Adventure. What If, number 96, this is from 1997, an issue starring Quicksilver, very strange, very 90s art, Not totally sure what happened in this, but I'm pretty sure that I didn't get much out of it. And from the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality, I read a two-part story featuring Dominic Fortune in Web of Spider-Man, 71 and 72. Silver Sable is in these issues as well, and she is very dismissive of Spidey's skills, regularly calling him an amateur. And often rightly so. Good story all about taking down Nazis. Good stuff. And from Dark Horse Comics via Chris Willett, I read Comics Greatest Worlds, Week 1, Rebel. A comic written by Barbara Kiesel. Solid story, good concept and all that. But it was the 90s and this guy's long blonde ponytail and bare-chested costume. No, please. Just. No. From Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, I have an issue that he sent that was a Kickstarter. The Damsel from Distress, number two. I really enjoyed the first issue of this, and the second one was just as delightful and energetic. We have a medieval fairy tale setting with a secretive agency delivering protection and various other similar services. In this one, our leading lady is tasked with rescuing the daughter of a king from a kidnapper. A kidnapper who was suspected to be the heroine's own father. Love the setting, love the character. This is a nice little dramatic bit. Fun series. Thank you, Kirk. And some kids' books that are read. Many from Sir Rob Lance and also 
a bunch from Pulp Reality or Hoopla? I read Harvey Collector's Comics 2, 6, and 8, Donald Duck Adventures 20, Laugh, 374, Little Dot 162, Archie's Girls, Betty and Veronica 3, 4, and 5. Those ones were from around 1950. And Archie Annuals 3 and 4 also from the early 1950s. The Harvey Collector's issues, so mostly Richie Rich reprint books with a few stories here and there featuring Little Dot or Lotta. These reprinted stories from the early days of Richie, like 1961, 1962. And it can be interesting to see a property like that back before they had all the bits of the formula all set, all figured out. And on those Archie stories from the early 1950s, there are two changes that struck me since in terms of character. Like I just mentioned with the Richie Riches, it's interesting to see these stories before all the kinks had been worked out. Because first, Big Moose had a different girlfriend, not Midge, although his reaction to any fellow spending any time with her, that hasn't changed. Also, at first, Betty was a stereotypical, clueless, dumb blonde. So I'm curious when she developed the traits that I know regarding her, that of being a really good athlete, playing on some boys' teams, and also being a very skilled auto mechanic. I wonder when those traits developed in Betty. All right, time to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read in November. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. Darkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emma discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. And we're back to talk about trades, long runs, miniseries, and seasonal reading that I did last month. And for November, that means some war-themed comics 
in observance of Veterans Day or Remembrance Day, all for hashtag War Comics Month. Listed more or less in alphabetical order, we've got Archie, 1941, 1 through 5, written by Wade and Augustine in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. The recently graduated from high school Archie crew have to deal with the impending conflict and what the effects are that it will have on Riverdale and on their lives. And Archie chooses to enlist, as does Reggie. Well, Jughead is one of the fellows who does not. And all of those choices bring with them their own drama, their own trauma. And at least one member of our main cast dies on foreign soil. A really interesting, surprisingly nuanced, 360-degree look at life during wartime, both in the theaters of war and also on the homeland. I'd recommend this miniseries. This was the first in a series of series, which put the Archie characters at various points in history or moments of pop culture import. So an interesting idea, and like I said, I think this was a good way to start that initiative. Blackhawk, 252, 259, 262, 266, 268, and 269. This is my favorite of the war books of the war-themed characters. Of these, issue 252 to me is a legitimate classic. It's the story of the war wheel, where Blackhawk meets the smoking hot villainous Domino. Yumpin' yiminy. It's a great story. And both Domino and the creator of the war wheel come back later in the run, which is a nice bit of continuity. Not all the war books do ongoing stories of recurring characters, so that is a nice bit of what Evanier and Spiegel were doing with these issues of Blackhawk. Issue 268 also had a nice little Christmas backup feature, uh, Christmas and Hanukkah, actually, and an illustrated story of sorts, or maybe more of an illustrated poem, uh, Olaf, I think it is, has to ditch in a small German village and is taken in by a Jewish family and learns about their traditions. It's a very good little, maybe six or seven page story. And the Blackhawk special number one, this one was from a few years later, 1992, and takes place later also, in November 1963, in Dallas. That's right. The team has heard rumor of an assassination attempt against President Kennedy, and they decide to do something about it. No spoilers, but I think you know how well that worked out. Captain America, 608 and 609. These are from the Brubaker era from 2010 and are both branded as the heroic age. Not totally war books per se, but these do pull on the strings of Cap and Bucky and their time in World War II. The main plot is the younger Baron Zemo trying to finish the job that his father failed at during WW2, killing Bucky, who is currently in the Captain America costume, by the way. It's an interesting jumping-off point for a story, and I tend to like a lot of what Brubaker did, both with Cap and Bucky, during his run. 
Crash Ryan 1 through 4 by Ron Harris from Epic Comics 1984. This is an alternative history story. We're in the 1930s. An evil fella going by the name of The Doom. No, not that Doom. Just The Doom. With a futuristic squad of planes that scares the nation uh, with its firepower, he bombs Pearl Harbor and then takes over Japan. And only Crash Ryan and his team of airmen stand in the way of world domination. It's a story that takes place against the backdrop of the world of World War II, with some of the technology and a little bit more future tech, and tells a pretty good story start to finish. It's wordy. It takes a while to read, but it's mostly worth that investment. From Charlton Comics from 1966, Fightin' Five, number 38, it's the team versus Satan. Well, S-A-T-A-N, the evil organization that is run by a power-mad genius who just happens to dress in a red devil costume. It's branding, man. You gotta do it. Fun adventure story with a bunch of cool undersea battling. And sticking with Charlton, these came from Jeremiah, from Kirk, and the bins at Half Price Books. Fighting Marines, 119, 133, and 175. A range of interesting stories. Perhaps the anthology book with the highest percentage of solid stories, or maybe better put, the lowest percentage of not-so-good stories. Not a clunker in the lot. And for a title that has three stories per issue, that's not always the way it works. These are solid, pretty historical, pretty realistic. I think Fighting Marines was a really good series. G.I. Combat 175 and 202 from Kirk Spencer and Sir Iowa's Joe, respectively. I quite enjoyed 202 in particular. This was an 80-pager from the Dollar Comics era. This one had three solid haunted tank stories. But it's always a treat to read a war comic from D.C. and turn the page to find an OSS story. I really enjoy those stories, a little more spy stuff, uh, secret mission stuff than flat-out battle stories. They're a cool change of pace, so both of these really nice issues. G.I. Joe, The Fall of G.I. Joe 1 through 8, a complete story, written by novelist Karen Travis. If Cobra changed their ways and rebranded themselves as an international peacekeeping force, would the world need the Joes? When even Scarlet's testimony before Congress can't save the team's budget, how will they cope? Will they stay together long enough to take on one last mission to reveal the bad guys for being the bad guys that we all know they are? That is the story that these eight issues tell, and it does a pretty good job. It's not a traditional G.I. Joe story in the sense that this would be hard to replicate in an animated series, for example, or with your action figures. 
But I like the paramilitary pseudo-spy stuff, uh, like I said before, and really enjoyed this. For me, I'll be honest, not having a ton of G.I. Joe history probably helped me appreciate and enjoy that story more. G.I. Joe, a real American hero, number 34. This is from the Devil's Due run from 2004, sent in by the fan hole himself, Derek, Derek W.C., In this one, Cobra and the Joes are both in disarray. And I don't know how long this particular storyline was, but this issue seemed like the one where things go from bad to worse, you know? So hard to judge one issue out of a storyline, but I can say it was a pretty book, and it still looked good production-wise after almost 20 years. Harkins Raiders. What I read was a 20-page preview comic for a larger OGN from Daryl Banks and Ron Mars. The copy I have was one that M rescued from a dime box, and it's signed on the cover by Banks and by someone else, but I don't think it's Ron Mars or maybe someone else in the creative process. It's a good story. Finland, 1942, an allied team parachutes in to rescue a POW. Very enjoyable preview, and certainly a 10-cent bargain. Hell in Stalingrad. This is a World War II story of the battle between Germany and the USSR on the Russian front, which was sent in by Kirk Spencer. And the hell part of the name is not just a play on war is hell, because the intensity of the warfare in this battle actually opens up a doorway to a dark dimension where all sort of big, ugly, demonic beings join the battle. This is a very interesting-looking book presented in three dynamic colors, black and white and red, and it's definitely a distinctive look. Most of the pages are split horizontally, two panels per page, and that gives the art a chance to really be seen, which works because the art, I think, is purposely messy. You know, the fog of war and and all that. So interesting book. Thank you, Kirk. Joe Kubert presents one through three. These were on the DC app. And although they weren't exclusively war books, a good chunk of the content was war-related. So it almost sort of counts here. (laughs) Alongside... Some Hawkman and some modern Angel and the Ape and some sci-fi. We got stories such as Sam Glansman's series USS Stevens and some bits and pieces about Glansman's life and career. I don't know if the fellows at the Weird Warriors podcast have seen this series, but for the Glansman content alone, they should. Mars Patrol, Total War number 8 from Gold Key, 1969. This is military sci-fi. It's a story about aliens invading Earth. Now, the Mars of this title, M-A-R-S, is the Marine Attack Rescue Service, an elite and diverse international strike force. In this one, the alien shapeshifters are secreted away along the Florida coast, and the Mars Patrol needs to root them out. It's got gold key art and production, but it's a solid professional military sci-fi story. 
Our Fighting Forces, 178, featuring The Losers. Two stories featuring The Losers, as a matter of fact. And ever since I read some Captain Storm for the quarterbend a few years back, I've become more of a fan of The Losers. So this one was a pair of solid World War II stories. Sad Sack Laugh Special, 65. And Sad Sack and the Sarge, 46 and 66. Unfortunately, the guy that owns Pulp Reality has a buddy who loves Sad Sack. And so they are pretty few and far between in their 50-cent boxes because, you know, he grabs any ones that he sees come into the store. So not a lot make it to the bins. So they are treats when I find them. And as long as they're of a decent condition, many of these find their way from me down to Florida for a certain irredeemable podcaster who is also a fan. I was going to say that these didn't exactly count as realistic war books, but then I think about the way that the generals are portrayed as aloof and not terribly competent, and the way the officers feel about the enlisted personnel and vice versa. Some of the crazier ideas that the brass comes up with. And then it struck me that maybe these are, in fact, the most realistic war books after all. When I posted a picture of a recent haul from Pulp Reality on Twitter, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, the notorious JJG, commented on how good the sad sacks looked in terms of their condition. Whenever I see them in the bins, he commented, they are usually beat to heck. Still fun reads, but always worn out. And then we agreed that sad sack is pretty underrated. It is consistently funny. The Sergeant Fury Annual Number 4, which could actually have been covered next month because it has a framing sequence of the Howlers gathering later in life for a Christmas celebration. And then Uncle Nick tells his nieces and nephews of the story of how the team contributed to the successful Battle of the Bulge, which also took place over the Christmas season adventurous, vaguely historical, with some humorous lines, and even a bit of melancholy as Fury remembers his lost love, Pamela. A really excellent 40-plus page story. There was also a fun five-page backup featuring the Sergeant Fury creative team of Gary Friedrich and Dick Ayers, of them joining the Howlers on the front lines so they could more properly draw and write their stories. Each team member complains about how they are portrayed in the stories. It's a fun little bit wrapping up an overall quite excellent issue. And some more from the 50-cent bargain bins at Pulp Reality, from one sergeant to another. We have Sergeant Rock Special, 4, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Each had at least one good-sized rock story and then filled out the 48 pages with other features, sometimes more rock stories, sometimes other war stories. For example, special number nine had a terrific enemy ace story with the Hammer of Hell battling the Hunter. And issue 11 had the introduction of the Haunted Tank, as well as a Gunner and Sarge and Pooch story. 
and also one featuring a gorilla who helped out the U.S. Marines. Not really a surprise, actually. Because if you read enough DC comics, eventually you're going to get to the monkeys. Special number 11 deserves mention here again for containing a darkness to light appropriate story of a squad of Roman soldiers lamenting the terrible duties they just performed, duties that they performed over Passover around 33 AD. From Hoopla, I read True Stories of World War II, a collection of four- and five-page historical stories featuring the Bataan Death March, Charles Lindbergh, Iwo Jima, aviation pioneer Jacqueline Cochran, stories like that. This is one I could definitely see in schools and libraries. I imagine that was the intended market. And obviously, I don't know if it succeeded in penetrating that market, but at least in terms of the attempt from a creative standpoint, I think it definitely succeeded in what it was attempting. Weird War Tales 5280 and 100 from right smack dab in DC's Bronze Age. These came from Kirk Spencer and Tom Panaris and definitely lived up to the weird title, the character of death serving as the host. There are a couple of really oddball two-page Twilight Zone type stories, but the best thing in these was the cover story of issue 100 which celebrated the title's centennial issue with a creature commando story and a War That Time Forgot story. And even better, it was one story with the creature commandos finding themselves inside the War That Time Forgot. You want U.S. military versions of Frankenstein and a vampire and a werewolf battling dinosaurs? You know you do. Yes. It was goofy as all get out, but I am going with gloriously goofy. And from Image, from the creative team of Mark Miller and Tony Harris, War Heroes number two, for which I paid a clean, shiny dime. Thank you, World's Greatest Comics Super Sales. This is a futuristic war series where warriors take pills to get temporary superpowers within the organization and structure of the military service. Again, this is just one chapter of a longer story, so it's hard to rate the issue itself, but it is an interesting idea. All right, that was a good collection of war books. Thank you, Sir Luke Giaconetti, for getting this hashtag going a few years ago. And congratulations on its growing success over the years. And I was glad to see so many people participating, a list that includes, but is in no way limited to, Sir Iowa's Joe, Kirk Spencer, The Telltale Mind, Bronze Age Babies, Donald Rex Jr., Tom Panaris, and Mark Reznicek. Next month, we'll do some hashtag Holiday Comics Month reading. And that brings us to the rest of what I read last month, including the original graphic novel Dear DC Supervillains, which I read from Hoopla, 
over the last few years, I think maybe ever since DC Superhero Girls broke so big, DC has been pretty good at hitting this market with more mainstream OGNs featuring takes, uh, versions of their characters. In this one, the villains are answering their fan mail one at a time, you know, one character per section per chapter. Characters like Harley, Catwoman, Giganta, Black Manta, Sinestro, Luther. But each of these individual stories eventually builds through one big plot to one big fight scene, which, spoilers, the heroes win. And from the Hoopla app, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur 1 through 6, in which the preteen genius Lunella has her life turned upside down when an actual big red dinosaur, hence Devil Dinosaur, from the actual prehistoric era shows up in our modern age. And they have a close connection, actually, just about the only beings on Earth who understand each other. It's hard to keep the presence of a huge red dinosaur secret, so Marvel folk, like the totally awesome Hulk, show up to capture Devil Dinosaur. Also a group of caveman-type savages also came with the big dino to our time, and they have set themselves up as the newest and roughest street gang in NYC. So Lunella has her hands full all the way around. I thought this was a very fun story, and I imagine that I will read more volumes down the road, but this was definitely a very good start. Also from Hoopla, a series designed for middle-grade readers. I guess called that because the word tween didn't really catch on. I read Marvel Action Captain Marvel 1 through 3. Stories pitched at this age group, especially for the female part of this age group, usually are either too sickly sweet for my tastes or nailing the idea of adorable. Oh, sorry. Adorbs. And fortunately, this one was adorbs. A delight to read. Just a fun space adventure story in which Carol Danvers and her buddy Jessica Drew, with a little help from the Guardians of the Galaxy, thwart an invasion of Flurkins. You remember. Those are the super cute cat aliens from the Captain Marvel movie. And just so you know, if it weren't for my pesky allergies, I would have the total potential to become, and this is a gender-neutral phrase, a crazy cat lady. And because of that, I loved this. I can't speak to how a dog person would feel about the story, but again, I loved it. It was flirking adorable. And from our good friend Carla Y with a little supplementation from the DC app, I read The First Battle with Trigon. In Tales of the Teen Titans 60 through 65, from 1984, from the Wolfman and Perez team. I often say that in reading DC comics from the early 80s, you can often see that, yes, they definitely needed to make some changes, that they were stale and old fashioned, out of step. Well, this is, of course, 
one of those titles where that is not the case. This is terrific, dramatic, modern, excellent. Think of any superlative, and that word probably applies to these issues. The art is great. Perez rocking it with the drama of Trigon and his hellish realm. And Wolfman does solid work giving all the characters their own little arcs, their own personalities and quirks, and a lot of interpersonal conflict and contact. If you want to find a weak point, it might be that there are a lot of words, and sometimes they distract from Perez's work. They certainly, in in some cases, literally cover up his work, like they take up space on the page, uh, covering up his art more than you'd like sometimes. But it's hard to say anything other than these are really good comics. And lastly, again from Hoopla, from Arcana, I read Fafnir the Dragon 1-4. through It's an interesting take on the dragon legend, with the idea being that anyone who finds a piece of the dragon's scattered horde could call forth the dragon and then control him for a number of days. And with that intense fantasy theme... The series actually goes in humorous and satiric directions, which was a complete surprise. Strange story, but interesting and a quick read. Also very enjoyable. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, I'm not going to lie, this was a really good month. Action Comics 411 was terrific. The Teen Titans storyline with Trigon was excellent. And from the hashtag War Comics Month books, the Sergeant Fury annual was very good. The Sergeant Rock specials were solid, no surprise. But in terms of my absolute favorite, I have to go with Blackhawk 252, which introduced the War Wheel, my favorite read of the month. Now, next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than some holiday-themed books for December. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books I read in December, as well as do our annual year-in-review discussion. And that episode ought to be out, as I mentioned earlier, on New Year's Eve. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of the books that I mentioned, especially if you've read them. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or you can try to leave a comment on the Facebook or blog post for the episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, although comments have been difficult to leave there from what I hear. You can follow the network on Twitter at Relatively underscore Geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening. And keep the pages turning.